Welcome, everyone. My name is Alan Mishra. This is actually episode five of A Surgeon and a Seal. Five. We've done four previous ones like this. We're also going to put this out on Vitality Explorer News as a podcast. And I am joined by my good friend, Captain Tom Chaby. So, you know, Captain Chaby, maybe you can introduce yourself a little bit. Oh, thanks, Dr. Mishra. Alan, my good friend. Um, Met a few years ago, been good friends almost from the beginning, from the get-go. And my background, I was in the military. I served as an officer in the Navy SEAL community. I had the privilege to lead teams in combat. And from that experience, coupled with being an instructor, a SEAL instructor, and then leading an effort called Preservation of the Force and Family, which focused on holistic, full-spectrum resilience, physical psychological, social, the family piece, and spiritual, not necessarily manifesting itself religiously, but however you manifest and capture the religious component of our lives, taking those four domains and synchronizing them to help warriors be as healthy as possible. From that, when I retired after 26 years, um, I've had the privilege to work with teams, sports teams, Uh, to include University of Michigan, and I'm sure that'll come up in the conversation today, and and, uh, corporations, uh, a couple of great corporations, Fratter Conjoli Wealth Management, one of the top wealth management companies in the country, uh, Globus Medical, a spine company, uh, Dex Imaging, or the three big uh, organizations I've been working with the last few years. So uh, it's an honor to be with you. Awesome. So we should just have a disclaimer. Uh, Captain Shaby and I are very good friends. Uh, he's an example of a good friend a- a that, you know, we've made uh, after a certain age. We met at a conference uh, in, of all places, Las Vegas. It was a, a regenerative medicine conference several years ago. But we bonded on that idea of trying to enhance our vitality through physical, mental, social, and spiritual well-being. So what we do that when we do these, we call these a surgeon and a seal we on purpose don't tell the other person what the questions are going to be, what are the you know themes. And uh, since this is the beginning of 2023, I want to jump right in, if I may. I'm going to take uh, the leadoff position this time, if you don't mind, Captain Chavy. And that is to discuss this impressive thing that happened <clears throat> on New Year's Eve. So um, disclaimer to those people out there, we're going to talk about the Michigan football game for a minute. I went to undergrad in med school at Michigan. Tom has worked with the Michigan football team. And uh, I was very lucky to go to the game on Saturday. And for those people who are not football fans or not interested in that, we're going to talk a little bit about some lessons I learned uh, during that game. And then after that game, and hopefully, Captain Chaby will be willing to comment on some observations I had. Is that all right? Absolutely. Okay. So first, uh, I, I'm going to begin with about, I don't know, three or four weeks ago, maybe five weeks ago now, when Michigan beat the uh, beat Ohio and then beat uh, uh, Purdue for the Big Ten Championship is when I booked to go to Arizona for the, uh, the for the Fiesta Bowl. And what is interesting has happened between that time and the actual game is a series of people that I knew from undergrad and medical school at Michigan got together and put together a tailgate in Arizona. And I have to say that we were very lucky to have good weather down there, but for about two hours before the game, about 20 or 25 of us gathered 
and discussed our lives. And um, it was amazing. We A lot of the people in my age group have kids who are in college, several of uh, whom who are at the University of Michigan. And we just swapped stories. And some of these people I hadn't seen in 20 plus years. But before the game started, I learned and relearned the value of camaraderie. I relearned and learned about my you know, friends and their families and their kids. And as I move forward in life, I realized how important it is to not just connect with my friends, but to hear the stories from my friends, uh, college now, college age uh, kids. So then we all went into the game. And I'm going to probably just give a little commentary about the Michigan TCU game or Texas Christian University. Um, Michigan came in as about a seven and a half point favorite, maybe an eight point favorite, depending on where you were looking. And the, the game was probably the most exciting or thrilling game I've ever been at in person, minus the outcome. Now, I believe maize and blue, um, but the University of Michigan started off in a very challenging way. And even, even though they kicked, I think, about a 59-yard field goal at the end of the first half, it was 21 to 6 at the end of the first half. And so that's where I want to pause for just a second. And what I what I saw in that first half, uh, first of all, the pregame was awesome to see my friends uh, and see a lot of people. But the first half was a disaster. Uh, there were you know things called pick sixes where the quarterback throws to the wide receiver and he runs it back for a touchdown. There were controversial calls by the refs where touchdowns were taken off the board. And you know in that context. I, I was I was pretty despondent. I had to take a little walk around the concourse at halftime, kind of kind of reset my my brain. But I'd like I'd like maybe to pause for a second at that point, and then and then you know, Tom, I know you're a big fan, or you're also connected to. It, but what what is your thoughts about before or or during the first half of that game? Yeah, you know, hearing you you give the preamble, the point spread, seven and a half, eight points. Uh, expectations. That's the first thing that hits me right here. Expectations are a dangerous thing. And I think people fall victim to them often. And you know what I do for a living. And and I work in the realm of what I've come to call the intangible. And what does that mean? The tangible things you can measure. What was the score of the game? We know what the score was. How fast can uh, the best running back on the football field, run the 40-yard dash. We know that time. How many reps can the strongest guy lift? We know We know these things. What was your intellectual MCAT score before you started applying to medical school? All these things are tangible. Uh, the intangibles are things that are really hard to measure. And the four intangibles I focus predominantly on are mindset, discipline, resilience and leadership. And we all know a good leader when we see it, but you know, I've never heard somebody say, wow, that guy is a, a 200.4 leader or that young lady's a, a grade A plus leader. I mean, you know it, but you can't define it. Sure. You can say certain things. That person's empathetic. That person's an active listener. Wow, that leader really empowers that person passes strategic guidance effectively. Um, but all these things are difficult to truly identify. This game, in my opinion, in the first half is really a tribute to this, was a battle of the intangible. And 
TCU really came out on top in a couple ways. Uh, discipline being one. Uh, even resilience in the first half, TCU came out on top. Leadership, um, I'm not going to pass judgment because I wasn't on the sideline. I wasn't in the, the huddles listening. And mindset's tough to really assess from afar. But I will venture a guess that at a minimum, there was a level of expectation uh, by each team that set up what happened. And what do I mean by that? I, I, I think Michigan expected things to go differently. I think TCU expected to be coming into a very tough game where they were going to have to play their best. And guess what they did? Uh, so with all those things being said, there's a lot of great lessons learned. You know, don't be presumptuous. Uh, I have no idea if Michigan was that way or not. I have to be very careful with what I say because I, I respect the world out of the coaching staff there. And I'm still very close with probably 50% of the players. Um, but all week long, you're hearing the media, seven and a half, eight points. Hey, we've arrived. We beat Ohio State second year in a row. TCU, who the heck are they? They weren't even ranked before the season started. So this narrative can be dangerous if you buy into it. And when I work with teams and when I work with organizations, I encourage them, ignore that. You really need to stay focused on what matters. And what matters is your own performance and staying disciplined to how you perform to the closest potential that you have inside of your realm. So for me, I think that is a lesson learned in the first half is expectations. Be careful about them. They can bite you. Yeah, that, I think that's true. And that's actually true for, for, for those people who may be listening or watching who are not football fans. I think that's true of almost anything we try to do in life. Our expectations can get in the way of, of what the expected outcome could be. And then, and then maybe, and um, maybe we start to believe in what I call your press clippings. So that could be somebody who's done something a thousand times. So I, I still, I still uber prepare for any and all surgeries I've done, even if I've done them a thousand, two thousand times. Uh, and that preparation and discipline that people exhibit, I think, in whatever line of work they're in or whatever they're doing with their lives. Um, I think is what usually ends up making making a difference. So shifting after after my halftime of just wandering around the concourse, I don't know what happened in the locker room. I did come back with a little better mindset as a fan. And then the third quarter was the most explosive third quarter, I think, in ever in, in college football. Over 40 points were scored. Um, and it was a track meet. People were going back and forth. And what I learned from that was maybe maybe the defenses took a little bit of a timeout. But what I came out of that third quarter with is, you know, things that were not expected to happen in the first half did happen to my beloved Michigan Wolverines, but they did not quit. They showed resilience. They showed grit and they didn't grip to the point of saying, look, or feeling sorry for themselves. They didn't, you know, bail into victimhood because maybe a call, a controversial call went the wrong way. Um, and so at the end of the end of the fourth, or excuse me, end of the third quarter, um, it was back to being a real game. It was back to being there, but it didn't, it didn't have to get there. So I don't know. What was your take, take about for the third quarter of that game? Um, yeah. Um, once again, discipline was a factor. 
more so on the Michigan side than the TCU side. And when I say discipline, mistakes. And, you know, there's approximately, you know, if you're playing against Army or Navy, there are very few plays in the game. But a typical college football game has about 150 to 170 plays in a game. You know, on offense and defense, each team getting the ball multiple times, et cetera. And out of those plays, there are probably, once again, 150 to 170. The SEC does the most offensive plays, 76. I was able to find that online yesterday getting ready for this call. And I guarantee if you looked at that game and dissected it, it truly came down to five, six plays, yeah, maybe four plays. And in those four plays, there was a breakdown. And the other team took advantage of it amazingly so. You know, you got the two pick sixes you talked about. Um, then they also had a couple of big breakaway plays um, for whatever reason, uh, over, over pursuit, um, over aggressive uh, schematic call, perhaps. And once again, I can't pass judgment on any of that. Uh, but all I can say is TCU did not seem to make any truly big mistakes other than, you know, you look at, you know, I, I, I got to give the quarterback a ton of credit for Michigan. You know, J.J., when, when it was looking ugly, the guy never blinked. Give me the ball. And he runs for a 30-yard touchdown or whatever that one run was. And the resilience, like the first half, the resilience in the second half, frankly, by both teams, was incredible. And that's what created that 44-point track meet you were referring to. Like, neither team refused to blank. They just kept going, 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 ping pong, back and forth. And usually one of the teams breaks. And I I will give Michigan more credit there for being more resilient because they were behind by quite a chunk. And they were able to chip away at it and get closer and closer. So it was impressive. Uh, But eventually the clock. Yeah time came into play and you know you look at that last play and you know I don't want to get into was it a spearing helmet to helmet uh infraction or not I've seen the replay 25 times now and I still frankly don't know the answer um it probably was a good no call just because of the magnitude but I don't know maybe they should have called it because of the magnitude but once again um, the resilience was amazing, but I think the discipline, the breakdowns were minuscule. But once again, 150 to 170 plays, two or three of those plays, we had breakdowns on the Michigan side, you and I both being on the Mis- Michigan side of the fence in this this game. Uh, that's all it took. Right. Because TCU didn't blank. Yeah, they didn't. And and I, I can't say that I wasn't massively disappointed with with the loss in the immediacy of the game, um, but it was New Year's Eve and ended up um, going out with some friends for a, sort of a casual dinner with their adult children, and and then watched the uh, Georgia Ohio State game, which was very interesting in and of itself. 
But what I wanted to, to, to dive into here, you know, we've talked a lot about this Michigan game and what it meant to deal with in terms of discipline and uncertainty. And, you know, the camaraderie is something else that I really didn't understand, not just on the team, but on the people who are the fans of the Michigan football team. And I think we can extend that for people who are not, you know, connected to football or not connected to this particular game is that mistakes are going to happen. Uh, bad calls are going to happen um, in life where maybe it isn't something that is your fault. Maybe it is even it, even an injustice, <laughs> which is what I would call <laughs> perhaps that touchdown that got called back. Um, but how are we going to deal with that injustice? How are we going to overcome that injustice? How are we going to keep our heads up even in the context of a loss? And so, so Tom, I'm going to share something that I found and then I want to get your take and then, and then we'll flip flip it here is what what happened actually before the game is is uh, JJ McCarthy was asked why does Michigan's football team seem to love each other what is the core uh that underscores that camaraderie that that team exhibited all year long in the face of adversity losing their best player arguably in Blake Corum coming back beating Ohio State on the road winning a Big Ten championship. And then even in the loss, I think his his statement before the game is prophetic. And here's what he said. He said, when asked why Michigan loves, the team loves each other, it's because of our, quote, shared suffering. Okay? Unbelievable. So he said that before. So now they're suffering again in a different context of after a loss when they're expected to win. But my second question for you, Tom, is in that context of saying that team suffered together to get to be a better team. This is a question for everybody out there, because too often I think we're only pursuing happiness or we're only pursuing something that wants us to make us feel good. But here's my question for 2023. What are you willing to suffer for? What are you willing to sacrifice for in order to make yourself, your team, your country, or this world a better place? Okay. That's actually a very serious question. And uh, I know you've suffered and I know you've sacrificed, um, but I don't know. First of all, comment on the question. Is it is it a stupid question? Is it a crazy question? Or is it something we should be considering uh, individually and collectively? No, it's a serious question. It's an important question. And regardless of the fact if we overtly address it or not, it's a looming reality in everyone's life. What are you willing to sacrifice for the teams that you're a member of? And, you know, a little background on me, and you know these things about me. I come from a broken family. You know, no abuse or anything. I got wonderful parents, the whole deal. But, you know, divorce. And we were never that prototypical dinner together every night family. And there were other elements of my youth that, y- you know, I y- you don't know what you don't have or you do have until you reflect on it later. Um, but in reality, I think I pined for a different type of family. I married into, if you look up the term functional family, my wife, the Lee family, is the most functional family I've ever seen. 
in my life. It's unbelievable. And great people. Uh, but they're very, very close. When you look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, to be part of something like that. And for me, first off, sports became that family. And then later, the SEAL community became that family. And incidentally, and interestingly for this conversation, a huge percentage of our guys come from broken families in the SEAL community. And sociologists would come study us all the time. They would look at us demographically, they, and they would, they would point these things out, and then they would compare and contrast us. In a lot of ways, we were very gang-like, um, although we're on the good side of the force, if you want to go to the Star Wars um, analogy. Uh, but, you know, kids that join gangs are usually coming from broken families and looking for that family unit. Uh, I think the SEAL community fits that same need. But anyhow, what are you willing to sacrifice to be part of that team? Well, I really, 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 really wanted to be part of that unit. Um, the sports team. I really wanted to be a relevant member of the sports team when I was a kid growing up, high school, college, and I would sacrifice almost everything. I, I'm, I'm, you know, not my life. I know that. Um, at that point, I'll get to that in a minute. But for uh, for my sports team, I, I would sacrifice all my time. I would dedicate all my time to getting a little bit better so I could be more relevant to my team. I, I played on a very good high school football team. We went to the States multiple times in high school. And we ultimately would lose in the finals of my last high school game, 22-21. Uh, brutal loss. Uh, it's great we made it. Um, if I could go back in time there, knowing what I know now, I just, uh, we missed an opportunity. But a lot of good lessons learned. But I would sacrifice all my time. I would sacrifice the joy of drinking soda. I would sacrifice sleep. I would sacrifice uh, spending time with maybe a girlfriend. Not that I had all that many in high school, uh, but I would sacrifice almost everything. And flash forward to the SEAL community, you could add in my life piece there. I would sacrifice my life. I would. I clearly would have on the battlefield. I would not even blink to stick with that metaphor um, I wouldn't, if it would have meant mission success, saving one of my teammates lives, you know, and, and, and one of the reasons I know that is when I finally had kids, which was extremely late in my career, I served 26 years, as already mentioned, I wasn't so ready to sacrifice my life anymore, not because of me, but because of that obligation I had to my kids coming from a broken family, I didn't want them to experience that. I wanted them to have what I didn't have. So at that point, I wasn't willing to sacrifice my life. And I had to be cognizant of that with the decisions I made. And I was a commanding officer at that time. So I could pick and choose where I put myself into those dangerous moments. And typically a commanding officer is sitting in the room with all the screens around the room, you know, with his cup of coffee. <laughs> All right. So that's what I would sacrifice. You know, at different points, it would be different. But um, I love JJ's comment. I'd love to find that online. I'm going to go Googling around. If you have it, please forward it to me. Um, the shared suffering. People ask me, what makes the SEAL teams so impactful, so effective? And it's because of shared adversity. Every SEAL, and this is one of the hallmarks of the SEAL community, officers and enlisted 
go through exactly the same initial pipeline, Hell Week, BUDS, Basic Underwater Demolition Seal Training, and that shared adversity is some, it's a common bond I have with every other SEAL. What class were you in? Were you a winter Hell Week or a summer Hell Week? What's your uh, number of people that made it through Hell Week? All these things, you know, demark what we went through together because the pipeline's the same as it was before. In fact, I think it's harder now because the standard is really managed more closely now. And in, in the shared suffering, as JJ would say, or the shared adversity, as I would say, and my teammates in the SEAL community would say, is powerful, is powerful. And that's one of the pieces that we do when we're out there working with companies is we bring experiential training to create a simulated uh, experience of adversity that they can go through. They share it together. They could reflect on it, remember it. And that brings you together. That's, that's, that brings me to a, a sort of a, a thing to consider for the people who are listening or watching this, this uh, surgeon in a seal and, and through vitality explorer news and the podcast is I have an idea that I'd like to bounce off. And then I, I think I've been monopolizing too much because you can, you can stump the chump after this, but what I, what I think is out there is, is the beginning of the year, we can double down on discipline. And most of us cannot ever even contemplate, um, you know, going through Navy SEAL training, or in my case, you know, one one millionth of that in orthopedic surgery training. Um, But what can we do in the next million seconds? And this is something I've been using for my uh, Vitality Explorer classes uh, through Stanford and other places, is a million seconds is about 11 and a half or 12 days. So uh, it's not quite hell week, but if we if we if we narrow that space of time down to saying, okay, what am I going to sacrifice or what could I suffer for in the next 12 days or a million seconds to make myself, my my community, my country a better place? And if we if we just take that shorter period of time frame and say, okay, am I going to give up social media? Am I going to give up complaining or gossiping or whining? What could I turn that thousand seconds per day into in just 12 days? And so maybe you're sacrificing some 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 level of comfort. Now, at the beginning of this year, a lot of people will say, hey, I'm going to give up on, you know, alcohol. I'm going to give up on watching, you know, TV that I shouldn't be watching or whatever it is. But turn that absolutely completely around and embrace, as you guys like to say, embrace the suck and and say, I am willing to sacrifice and suffer for 12 days for this. And then instead of just, you know, contemplating that, thinking about it, I suggest people write it down, maybe a list of two or three things that they would consider um, suffering for. Would that be to develop a new skill? Would that be to help your family? Would that be to help your community? Would that be to help your teammates at work, wherever that is? And then just do it, to borrow from Nike. So I call this think, write, do, or TWD. Instead of just contemplating your navel all the time, getting out, getting after it. And when you write stuff down, again, I'm going to ask for your comments on this, Tom. I think it helps clarify how you think. So we can think and dream of things all day long, but if we have to actually reduce it, and I recommend using a paper and pen because that encodes in your brain a little bit differently. And I have some you know, uh, confidential things that I'm going to be doing over the next 11 and a half days 
uh, that I've, I've I've committed to doing. I, I call it my to done list, not my to do list. But in twelve days, I want to have done this. Uh, one of them was this, by the way. I wanted to add, add an episode of a surgeon and a seal to the to the ether out there and, and add it to the Vitality Explorer News podcast. But um, I'm gonna I'm gonna shut my trap here for a second, Tom. I, I've sort of monopolized the the questions. If you have, do you have any questions for me or any comments on what I've said? Yes, you have been monopolizing the call. I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> uh, maybe I should put on my to done list to talk less. <laughs> I actually enjoy being asked questions, so uh, for me, it's it's great. I love it. Um, but I do have questions for you, and um, I really do like the uh, the TWD Think Right Do the to done list. These are all devices to help us drive behavior and performance, and. You know, at the end of the day, we all want to achieve these great things. You know, we, we, what, what has everybody been doing the last two weeks? I was just at the gym a little while ago. Most people I've seen in the gym in 11 and a half months. It's always that way. And it's funny, you know, I was in there talking with a friend of mine, a young man, my neighbor played baseball with a, um, Ole Miss. They won the World Series this uh, past year in college baseball. He's now with the San Francisco Giants. And he, and he came up to me and he's like, have you ever seen so many people in here? And we just appreciate they'll, they'll all be gone within two weeks. And how do you prevent that? You know, that, you know, and, you know, I like the, you know, when you write something down, it, it's kind of contractual. It kind of forces you to almost uh, to do it, you know, and then I would take a, a step, write something down and then send it in a letter to me. You yeah. write something down and send me a letter with it and I'll hang on to it till our, you know, surgeon and the seal, or as I wanted it to be called the seal and surgeon. Um, <laughs> I'll, I'll share it. I'll open it up next January and we'll see how, how you do. And I'll do the same thing. How about Actually, that? That's, that? Tom, that's a great idea of, of saying, you know, accountability is, you know, maybe it should be think, write, do, and then add an A accountability. Um, because when you when you add that in and you have to be accountable to somebody you you trust, somebody you respect, and then you do not want to disappoint that person. The one thing I've I've, I've leaned into a little bit is like I call this re- respecting your future self. It gets difficult if you go too far in time. So we get blurry past about 90 days. And so I can say to you, hey, I want to have run a marathon by 2024. Or if I say to you, and if I confidentially say to you what I want to get done in the next 12 days or that million second challenge, and then, you know, maybe you and I have a private conversation and say, okay, did I do what I said I was going to do? Oh my God, I will be much better. In fact, I'm going to propose that is that I'm going to tell you confidentially what I want to get done in the next 12 days, because I don't know if I can do it. I think it's going to be very difficult to get done what I want to get done. Uh, in the next 12 days. Um, but I have time in my schedule to do this. And it's something I really want to do. It's something that I overdue for having done. And I, I need to be disciplined about it. And if I have to report back to Captain Chaby, former commander of Navy SEAL Team 5, um, I don't want to disappoint you. So um, I will share that with you. Yeah, no, I, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm really liking the, the letter and envelope. It's sealed. And then you... Oh. There you go. Respecting your future self is powerful because your 
future self is going to watch on a Zoom call that you and I schedule, me open that letter, and that's going to be the first time I'm going to read it. And we go, all right, item number one. How did we do there, Dr. Mishra? And then and then you're going to go, Cat and Shavy, how did you do on, on, on my things? And, and that's a perfect segue for me to – a question I have, and 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 I and I I think you'll take it. I I I think you're going to go in a couple directions with this, and you may take the personal route, which please do. Um, but what was your biggest challenge in 2022? Wow. Okay, this is a tough one, but I'll be honest with people out there. 2022 just sucked. Okay, um, I am an indomitable optimist by nature but I went to four funerals and a wedding in 2022. Every every time I turned around and I didn't, I haven't really shared this with a lot of people because I just don't like to whine, but it just seemed like I got punched in, you know, left and right with very, very difficult things. Not me personally so much, but people who are very close to me faced enormous challenges in 2022. And what, what I had to figure out how to do again, being trying to be, careful and confidential about not sharing things that other people wouldn't want me to share. Um, I had to, you know, sort of subvert any sense of, Hey, I'm going through some challenges because the people around me needed me to stand up and just be the Oak tree that was never going to bend in the wind. Um, and so uh, I had to figure that out and I'm going to, I'm going to help people. I hope a little bit by saying what I, what I learned from that Tom and you're, you're part of this is that I needed a few people, not a lot, two, three people where I could pick up the phone and there's, you know more about this than I do, but whining, as uh, Tom Hanks said in Saving Private Ryan, does not go up, uh, does not go down the command chain, right? So I can't whine to people who are, um, I'm supposed to be helping take care of my patients or my family, but I needed a couple people like yourself where I could pick up the phone and be vulnerable. And say, look, it is it has not been a good situation. It has been difficult, and and there's a couple of things that happen when you when you when you when that happens, uh, and it can also be professionally if if things are not going well with your job, your your home situation, your family situation, whatever it is. But if you have two or three people, and not six or seven, but two or three people that can be trusted, like a a super safe to put it in a lockbox, and you can just say, listen, I suck. What's going on? How am I going to get out of this? How am I going to survive this? How am I going to help the people around me survive what's going on while I'm still, still supposed to be executing on my, you know, responsibilities, both personally and professionally. So that's what I learned in 2022. Um, I hope it made me a better person. I, I would, I know I know curveballs can come and hit me in the back of the head when I least expect it. I'm unfortunately more prepared for that in 2023, but I'm hoping it's just a fastball down the middle that I can hit out of the park. I love it. We're doing a lot of sports it. analogies out there today, but that's maybe where our our sweet spot is in terms of sharing it. But other people can understand what hopefully what that means, even if you're not into football or baseball. Yeah, the, the beauty with a sports analogy is, in, in, in my experience and opinion, and I struggle with this because I'll work with organizations where half the people there could care less about sports. and But people understand sports, and it's a perfect metaphor for life. There's a beginning, there's a middle, there's an end, 
and the simulated drama that's created by a sports competition allows us to explore the dynamics of the intangibles that we've been talking about today. And regardless whether you care about football, soccer, uh, women's field hockey, whatever, or nothing, you can appreciate the drama. You can appreciate the struggle, the adversity, and overcoming. And what do you do to prepare and to navigate these challenges? Because the same things happen in life. And they're emotional. They're physical in some cases, psychological in others, social, how we interface with each other. And they provide us opportunities from which to learn. You said a great word a minute ago, and it reminded me of something I just wrote a couple days ago. I can't find my reading glasses. They were here a few minutes ago, but I think I can see it well enough um, to read it. And you said the word vulnerable. And, and I think the word vulnerable gets such a bad rap. I'm from New Jersey, and I feel like New Jersey gets such a bad rap. New Jersey is one of the most beautiful states on the planet. It, it's it's phenomenal, or in the United States, I should say. And beautiful beaches, there's even mountains, lakes, the whole deal. Yes, we have some horrible, horrible parts of New Jersey by Newark Airport, for example. But the rest of the state's great. But the word vulnerable, man, it gets a bad rap. Like, who wants to be vulnerable? That's weak. But I think it's the exact opposite. I think somebody who's willing to be vulnerable is strong. Let me read this to you. And and I title it, Courage, Fearlessness. Be willing to get vulnerable and open yourself to a challenge where your best may not be good enough. I promise you, do this sincerely and you will be, do this consistently and you have created a way to deliberately shape greatness. And, and for me, vulnerability is the way. And, and, you know, I'll go back to JJ, the quote he said before the game. I hope that I get to see that. Uh, his quote after the game, he said, I'll be back. Um, I believe him. I do. I mean, JJ and the rest of the team showed resilience, showed grit, showed humility. Um, TCU, let's, hey, TCU came ready to play. They were a good team. And to stick with this metaphor for life, they they really they were disciplined. Yeah. They were probably, if you were gonna grade the discipline, they were probably a little bit more disciplined. Not a lot, but a tiny bit. And that's all it took than Michigan. Um, I think they were equal resilient-wise. And TCU, I think, had an advantage mindset-wise because they were the underdog. And then leadership, I have no idea. I'm just gonna say I think the leadership on both sides was probably fantastic because it was such a great competition. But what's going to happen from here? What are they? What are each of them going to – what's TCU going to do against Georgia? Georgia, Georgia was exposed a little bit. Yep. TCU, I, I don't think they're going to be quite the underdog that people would have imagined a couple weeks ago if they had been the one to end up playing Georgia. So challenge, you know, the biggest challenge you had is that the biggest challenge I had in this year was, you know, navigating this transition from where, you know, we had this dynamic in the world where we could move freely person to person was how we did everything. Then boom, COVID hit. 
changed everything for me. But then we're coming out the other side of COVID. You know, what is my world going to look like? You know, and I, what, what is my world? I'm a coach. I uh, I help educate. I help build and shape teams in conjunction with the senior leaders of organizations. And I'm pretty much behind the scenes. I don't want to be out there in front. I'm like a dog whisperer, if you may. Um, but I usually am the one. I have this ability to stand a couple, a couple feet back and see things that when you're inside, you're too close to see. And that's one advantage I have. But what the challenge I had is what, what is my work going to look like as we come out of COVID and things get back to a new normal, which includes this Zoom interaction at a much higher level than it was before COVID began. And, and, and I have to be responsive. I have to be resilient. I have to be disciplined. I have to be an active listener. I have to be aware. So for me, that's been the challenge. And, and I will tell you, my business model going into 2023 has morphed no less than four or five times where I'm thinking this is the way. And I'm like, oh, no, I got to go this way. Oh, no, that other way was probably good. And, and I'm still struggling with the exact uh, next moves I want to make. But, but I think I've got it down to some initial steps. And I think in our 90-day letter opening promise to each other, um, I think there's some interesting things I could write in my letter to myself, which you'll be holding me accountable to, uh, to, to keep me uh, on track. My next question for you is, what is your biggest regret from 2022, 2022 biggest regret? That's an interesting word. And I, I actually, you know, I'm, I'm going to try something out on you, Tom. And I, I, you can call me out on my BS if, if you think it's true is that I have lived my entire life wanting to avoid future regret. I have, there's, a, there's actually a computer algorithm that has, has, has actually beaten what they call solved poker in the context of, it's, it's a fancy computer term. It's called counterforce regret optimization. Okay, so We'll, we'll talk about this at another time, but I'm a big poker aficionado and I've been studying artificial intelligence and how this computer program was put together. And it's actually, you know, maybe something we can talk about in a future surgeon and a seal, but counterforce regret optimization seeks to minimize future regret. So every decision I have made for as long as I can remember has been in that context. This is well before this algorithm came out. I do not want to have a lot of regret. And here's here's how I, I'm going to be vulnerable with you and the audience again is I have a lot of things that I've done wrong. I've made a ton of mistakes. Um, I have gone down pathways that I do not wish I went down. But what I've forgiven myself for, what I allow myself to believe, whether it's maybe true or not, is that I am trying my absolute best at that time to make the best decision to avoid the future regret. I'll give you a few examples. You talked about it before. I also grew up in a difficult situation. I lost my mom when I was nine to a brain tumor. I didn't understand what a functional family was all about. So for as long as I've had a, a, a child, which is now 22 years, I have decided that I did not want to have any future regret with regard to my family. So I've always tried to put my family and my faith first. Okay. So in the last year, 
I'm trying to sp- be specific about what I've forgotten or excuse me, what I regret, but it's actually a little bit of the opposite is that in every single moment, I know that I might make a mistake. I know that I might have something I would potentially regret, but I, I, I pause and I think about it for a second. I go, here's all the information I have right now. Here's all the choices I have. What is the optimal long-term answer to the question of what's the least regret I will have at the end of that period of time? And and it's led to less regret, in all honesty, because I try my best um, to focus on something I learned when I was a resident, and that is um, this this guy who was a chief resident when I was an intern, just a phenomenal surgeon, phenomenal doctor. And he imprinted this on me as a young physician and surgeon. And I, I guess I don't know what the, I don't know what the right answer is. I don't know what the right answer is. I don't know how to deal with this. There's just too much uncertainty. I was panicking when I was on call one night and then he dropped this. It's not even a dime. What's, what's the equivalent of a billion dollar tip or something like that. He, he looked at me, tilted his head. He goes, if you do not know what the right thing to do is, it is almost always the harder thing. Oh my God. It's one of the best pieces of advice I've ever heard. So if you're in that moment when you are not sure what the right thing to do is, your inner gut, your inner soul, your inner brain actually does know maybe a little bit better than you do. But if you if you lean into saying, okay, here's the five things I could do. And if I if you are truly uncertain as to what the best option is, you got to choose the most difficult one. And I'll give you an example. If I have a patient who's having a complication or a serious problem, I have to go in, into sort of a robotic mode of going through the systems that are potentially associated with whatever that problem is. And you start at the top. Is it an infection? Is it something to do with the blood vessel? Is it possibly cancer? Is it something terrible that's going to happen? You have to have a system you go through that. And at the end of that, that gives me a little confidence that I've gone through that exercise, which takes time. and then. If I'm still uncertain as to what the problem is, and this happens also in the operating room at just a light, lightning speed, if I'm still uncertain about it, then I realize it's it's got to be the most difficult pathway. And then here's, here's the other thing that I, I'll throw out there, is that if I have gone through that exercise, if I have chosen on purpose the more difficult pathway, and the outcome, maybe this is also true, by the way, for the Michigan football team here, and the outcome is not optimal, I can forgive myself for that outcome because I know I've gone through that process of analyzing it systematically, choosing the more difficult path because that's typically the more the more the one that's more right. And I can't say I have zero regrets, but I have minimal regret for that purpose. So I don't know. There's a complicated, again, long-winded answer to your question, but what do you think? Yeah, you know, the word regret is um, an interesting word. And, you you know, I think when you're contemplating the word regret, you you have to be aware that there's this dynamic known as delusion that exists. And I think it's a a, a self-protection device by some people where their ego or back to what we started this call with expectations of themselves is such that if they don't achieve something that they do, they can reshape reality, go to their social media 
and, 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 and tweak it accordingly. And that'll take me right back to the quote that I said earlier, be willing to get vulnerable and open yourself to a challenge where your best may not be good enough. Like I used to play tennis, you know, not competitively, but I, I would go in competitions, but I never played in high school or college. I would just do these open tournaments and this was all post-college and it was a hobby, but I, I got pretty good and I got up to the four or five level, which is, you know, I would play college guys periodically. They would beat me up mercilessly, but um, I, I, I would play people sometimes and I wouldn't play my best, but I would win. And I would feel dirty. And then I would play other people where I would get my butt kicked, but I but I played my best and lose and, and I and I would feel better. And, and I, I I had to learn because you know you gotta be a winner. You gotta win at all costs. I think that's a dangerous thing because you know what? Um there's always going to be somebody better. Yeah. Maybe not right at this minute. Maybe you're the best right now, but eventually your skills going to go down a little bit and there's going to be this, this line and somebody's going to be better and they're going to be you. Whether it's in sports to stick with our earlier metaphors or it's as a surgeon or it's as a leader or as a salesman or saleswoman and be willing to be vulnerable and be willing to try your best. Don't be afraid to lose, but don't be afraid to win as well because those are both real dynamics. So the word regret takes me down all these rabbit holes and we all want to succeed. We all want certain outcomes for me. And this is one of the strategies that I really profess and teach is is be a neutral thinker. Like when you think positively, Oh, I got to win the game. I got to win the game. It becomes a burden. Just think neutrally. What do I need to do? to perform to my best? What are those actions, those micro actions? What do I need to do? And and, and forget about the outcome. Yes, we want to win. Yes, we want to be number one, national championship. We want to be the best surgeon ever, surgeon of the year. Yes, I want to have the most sales in, in the country for my company. But if you focus on that and you focus on the results, you're going to lose focus on those elements that are going to help you get those results. So be a neutral thinker. It's powerful. A good friend of mine, the late, great Trevor Moad, M-O-A-W-A-D, wrote a book called It Takes What It Takes or Getting to Neutral. He wrote two books, actually. He passed away, sadly, of cancer um, a little bit over a year ago, 14, 15 months ago. And he and I would talk about neutral thinking all the time. And, and people don't get it, but when they finally, it clicks, you know, like I'm positive about everything. We're going to have a great call today. I, I thought we would. I know we, we would. We, we get along. We mesh well. We're friends. We, 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 we uh, riff off each other, as a musician would say. And I think a musician would say that. Maybe I got that wrong. Yeah, but, yeah for sure. You know, once we got in a call, I'm not thinking positivity. I'm not thinking this is going to be number five is going to be the best surgeon to seal episode yet i'm thinking how can i bring the most value to our conversation how can i not have distracting hand movements how can i give you something relevant and how can i not talk too much so i'm going to shut up right now and pass the ball back to you well tom i i i think we hit it out of the park Uh, we're going to dislocate our shoulders patting ourselves on the back 
Um, I, I think if uh, for the people who are listening out there, our goal has, as always with our work, is to help people um, learn from our experiences. One thing I think you, you you learned a little bit today is is the challenges that each one of us have faced, um, long term and short term. Um, for those people who are looking at this surgeon in a seal and saying, "Oh, I could never do that," it's 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 the adversity that makes us better. And I like what you're talking about in terms of vulnerability as a pathway to greatness. Um, Tom, Tom, I would love for you to be able to just tell us how can we get in touch with you? How can people um, find you? Uh, and 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 we'll put this all in the show notes that people can follow the links. Um, and then we are going to report back, I guess, I don't know if we want to make this commitment yet. We don't have to share everything, but maybe 90 days from now, we can open our letters uh, to each other and see what the, see if, see how we did. That would be really scary, but maybe that's what we should do is, is make a pledge to 90 days or maybe even 60 days from now, um, do this again and <clears throat> open the letters. I'm not, I can't say I'm going to commit to that yet, but that's something I'm thinking about. I like the idea of committing to, to it as episode number six. And okay. I think you might have been saying that um, where, you know, our, our our 18 followers get to watch us <laughs> open our letters. And um, I'm kidding about that number. And Well, well wait a minute. Uh, I'm gonna, I'll take you up on it. Why don't we make it 60 days, whatever that is, about 60 days from now. And I will send you a letter in the next week. You can't open it. You send me a letter in the next week. I won't open it. Um, and that's where I want to have been, or my two done list in 60 days from now is what I will share with you. I love it. I love it. To get in touch with me, two ways I like to consider myself to be one of the most open guys on the planet. You can go to my website and my, my personal cell phone number is listed there. Uh, but I'll give it to you here as well. Um, T O M C H A B is in Bravo Y. Dot com where my email is Tom Chaby, my name 31 at gmail.com. And my cell phone number is 619-869-1206. That's awesome. So um, you know, again, we'll put some stuff up when I when I edit the video together. You can uh, reach me at am at dare to be vital.com, vitalityexplorers.com. And um I gotta tell you, Tom, we we never tell each other what we're going to do. Um, I am going to say that I think this may be the best surgeon in the seal ever. It's only episode five, 60 days from now, we will do episode six in the context of opening our, our future self letters that we will, we will read on the air. <clears throat> Gosh, I, I, I'm, I'm still having a little trouble, trouble committing to that, but I, I guess I'm going to do that. I will have to do that. And then we will report back to you, but I, I hope that inspires other people to say, listen, what can you do in the next 60 days? What can you do in the next 12 days or a year? Um, this is this is the year to take a fierce first step into 2023. Dream greatly and in, in, include yourself in that context of being vulnerable because that's part of the pathway. And um, until next time on Surgeon Seal, dare to be vital. So thank you for listening and have a great 2023. All right, Tom, that was... That was ridiculous. Okay.